Hi, everybody. Welcome to Millwood and Micah Discovering Avatar. My name is Amanda Millwood, and I'm a screenwriter, actor, director, and a fan of Avatar The Last Airbender. Flamio Hotman. My name is Todd Micah. I'm the author of Tales from Grimgard, an anthology of dark fantasy, and the Grimgard role-playing game. And I have never watched Avatar until now. If you've been following along with us, then you know we go over the episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender. And today on the podcast, we have a special guest. Amanda's friend, Savannah, is with us. Hi, I'm Savannah Gleason. I'm a stay-at-home mom. And just like Amanda, I'm a hardcore Avatar The Last Airbender fan. So glad to be here. Bringing them up in the ways of Avatar, then? You... Yes, I am. I have a three- and six-year-old, and my six-year-old loves Aang. <laughs> okay <laughs> yes she does she does is, this, she is loves the Aang. other one on the other side do they love zuko or um it, well she thinks zuko in the ponytail like whenever she sees ponytail zuko she calls him mean zuko and then <laughs> <laughs> but down here zuko she says he's nice zuko so my younger I, one on, isn't gonna... really in there yet I need to make a quick note of this that <laughs> mean zuko is ponytail zuko <laughs> Got it. Okay. All right. I'm ready to go. This has already enhanced my experience of the show. <laughs> Savannah, nice to have you with us today. Thanks. Glad to be here. The episode we'll be going over today is uh, Season 3, Episode 9, Nightmares and Daydreams. As always, some stats on the episode. It's written by John O'Brien, who, at the moment I'm blanking, uh, when the last time we saw his writing credit? Amanda, do you recall the last time we ever saw John's writing? Oh gosh, I don't. <laughs> so I just pulled up my list. Uh, the last time we saw any writing from John was actually all the way back at the start of season three. It was uh, the headband. Oh, Footloose, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, which is really really funny because it's it's such a funny episode, such a uh, such an odd episode in the in the rankings of Avatar. Um, but if it makes us feel any better about all that, uh, reaching back to season two, he wrote one of my all time favorite episodes, the library. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm just like, I love that one. Yeah, uh, the hot and cold of John O'Brien. If he's not writing <laughs> the library, he's writing the headband. <laughs> <laughs> and this is another weird one. So I guess he just likes weird kind of you know scripts. I, I at this point I have like thoughts on it, but let me share the rest of the stuff okay. before we start diving into it. Uh, it's directed by Ethan Spaulding, animated by Moy Animation. The episode aired November sixteenth, two thousand and seven, and the IMDb rating of Nightmares and Daydreams is a kind of middling seven point six out of ten. As you said, kind of a kind of a funny episode. We've been hitting mm -hmm. so many like big eights and nines recently in season three. And uh, now all of a sudden a little dip down. So take us away with some fun facts, Amanda. All right. So during Momo and Appa's duel and Aang's hallucination, the duel was similar to Obi-Wan Kenobi and General Grievous's duel in Star Wars Episode Three. <laughs> Appa uses four swords at once, which is reminiscent of Grievous's style in which he uses four lightsabers. <laughs> I, I did think of this. Really? <laughs> I did yeah, it. I was like... <laughs> As soon as he pulled out the four, I was just like, oh, okay, I get General it. General Momo. General I've, been, Momo. I've, I've been trained in your airbending arts by Count Dooku. Oh my god. Again, you gotta love the Star Wars references in this uh, in this show. And I love that entire sequence too. Like, 
the the height of the entire episode for me. <laughs> Um, our second fun fact is that in Aang's dream, he is first dressed similarly to Goku from the Dragon Ball series in orange clothes with a belt and large spiky dark hair. Now, as we've made several references to Dragon Ball throughout this series, um, I've never watched the show, but I did recognize that that was who he was cosplaying as. Yes, yes. And as soon as he popped out, I was like, oh, is that what Aang's hair would turn out like if he grew it out? He's just Goku. I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> You know, go right. goofy kid, flying contraption, loves animals, super strong. <laughs> you know, I've never watched Same. it either, but it, until Todd pointed it out, I, I as soon as he said it, I was like, okay, that makes total sense. Like, <laughs> what? He looks exactly <laughs> like him. Yeah, I mean, and like the, the gi that he's wearing and everything, I was like, oh, Goku. And uh, as I think we mentioned also, as long as we're on the subject, the second one, uh, am I right? It's supposed to be Kakashi from Naruto, isn't it? I have I, no idea. Is it Savannah? I think, I think it looks exactly like him now that you pointed that, it out. It, yep. It's the high collar around the face. Yeah, because he covers ha the most of his face and the crazy spiky hair. Totally. Yep. Totally. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Amanda, do you want to step out of the room and let me and Savannah have this part of the podcast? I'm like, I <laughs> really have no idea who you're talking about. Just smile and wave, boys. Smile and wave. <laughs> smile and wave. Um, and our third and final fun fact is that this episode pays homage to several movies such as The Ring, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Grudge, Lord of the Rings, and several other fantasy and dream-related movies. Now, that's something that I actually love about this episode. Um, one of my favorite scenes is basically a direct ripoff of one of my favorite horror movies, The Ring, um, with him having a nightmare and it's very jerky and creepy and it's like, wow, this is like kind of intense for kids, but like, I love that shit, so... <laughs> That is awesome. And you know, I I actually, until you're saying it, I didn't even think of the references. I was like, oh, scary, spooky dream sequence. But like, <laughs> I actually didn't think of it as references to The Ring or The Grudge. Where's the Lord of the Rings reference? I was kind of wondering that too. I don't know. Like, I was trying to look back through the episode and be like, I mean, we got tons of anime references, horror references. Where's Lord of the Rings coming in? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Savannah, any thoughts? Did you catch any Lord of the Rings reference in it? Uh, I mean, maybe Frodo? Maybe with his like dreams about the ring and stuff? Possibly? I don't know. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not like when Fire Lord Ozai is literally a giant thing of fire. It's not supposed to be like Sauron in like Frodo's <laughs> yeah. Drunk Nightmares. Is he? Is he Sauron? No, I, I, I'm not. I can't really. I don't know. Like, I do know that Frodo had, didn't he have like visions and nightmares and something though? He I, did. It's been a while since I've watched it, but I can s maybe see a little connection. I didn't put it I'm together in my own head, but. I, I didn't either. All I'm thinking of is that picture of the Fire Lord Ozai as like literally made of fire. And I'm like, maybe mm. it's a Sauron reference, but I don't know. Maybe. I'll have, to, I'll have to find a list of Easter eggs in this episode and, <laughs> and go through them in detail, I guess. <laughs> right. All right. Well, so that's all that we have for the fun facts. So I guess we should let our guests go first. Uh, Savannah, just overall, what did you, what do you think of this particular episode? Um, I thought this, I mean, this particular episode isn't my favorite episode. I would say it's my, not my favorite, but um, mm -hmm. I do 
like the balance of it. Like I felt like the seriousness with Zuko's side and also the silliness with the gang side. So um, Mm -hmm. I liked the comedy and um, I really liked, you know, Zuko really changes a little bit. He starts realizing things in this episode. So um, I thought it was a good balance. It was a, it was a good episode. I'd say it's solid. Yeah, I mean, just jumping in on the Zuko stuff, because obviously one of the the biggest focuses in the episode is on Aang, um, but it is worth noting that Zuko has some really good stuff going on in here. I really, I really love how Zuko is trying to get into, Zuko's trying to get into the whole princeliness of, you know, settle, he's making one last ditch effort to settle into, this is where I'm supposed to be, and this is where I belong, and this is, this is who I am, I'm the prince now, and I've, I've got May, my really depressed fire nation squeeze <laughs> like <laughs> that food was for my cranky girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> this food is for my cranky girlfriend is still gonna be one of my top quotes of the entire series <laughs> well, oh God. That, that was actually a funny moment for me well not a super funny but zuko like he started recognizing that he is a prince and he's been gone for so long so he just, he's not used to it, like Azula is. One of the best examples of it was right at the start of the episode when they're like, oh, well, you know, you, you the prince shouldn't walk everywhere. And he's like, okay. And he gets in and they literally carry him eight <laughs> steps to her house. <laughs> he was like, he was kind of low-key like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm literally walking yeah. 15 feet. <laughs> I loved it. Yes. And then, like, the servants, they asked him for... I think a head massage or a head rub and like a foot massage. And then finally the last guy, I think he asked him for a hot towel and Zuko was like, okay, like, fine, I'll take that. And I feel like Zuko, like he's just not used to that. And whenever mm-hmm. you see Azula, she's always, you know, getting her feet rubbed, getting her hair brushed, getting her hair washed. And like, they're just so polar opposites. And I feel like mm-hmm. he's not really fitting into the role. She's a megalomaniac, so of course she's going to live it up. Yeah, like <laughs> totally. They're just so different, and I feel like he's struggling with the prince role a little bit. You ever wonder how are these two actually related? But I mean, if you have siblings, maybe you looked at your own sibling and been like, how are we related? <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Among my siblings, unfortunately, I'm definitely more Zula than Zuko. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd say that's my sister. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but maybe a little Amanda bit. you've been awfully quiet on the whole sibling rivalry thing anything you want to spill about your family on the air <laughs> um I don't know where I would stand in the Zula versus Hugo debate but <laughs> um yeah no I'd say I'm a good mix of both like you know I like to live it up but I'm also always like out of the loop I feel like so I'm very much the black sheep of my sisters um but uh yeah, no, I love all the stuff that goes down with Zuko in this episode. It's like very simple stuff. It's not like super plot heavy, but um, I just love seeing him trying to integrate himself into the royal life again. And it just kind of being a normal day of him going about his business, you know, being the prince. And, um, you know, I love seeing him and May just kind of like hanging out together on a date. You know, it's it's really cute just to see him living what is supposed to be a normal life for him yeah. um it's it's just zuko just an average day date with his girlfriend carried across the street fruit tarts made to order and a heavy yeah. healthy healthy helping of imposter syndrome just a oh, regular yeah. day <laughs> literally 
the imposter syndrome is very strong in this episode for him um mm. more so than usual because i feel like that's something he struggles with the entire series um but uh i i do love that the moment that kind of he breaks a bit is when may mentions the war meeting that he hasn't been invited to and he like suddenly gets back into that brooding like he's been so happy up to this point and now he's just like oh i guess i wasn't invited <laughs> just like and then everybody knows that he doesn't need to be invited he's the prince but he doesn't because he's been gone all this time and so like you know he feels so out of it and he goes to azula and you know, she's just like, obviously she's being a bitch about it because that's what Azula does, but <laughs> she doesn't like be like, oh yeah, you shouldn't go. Like she tells him, just go to the meeting. Like, what are you bitching about? Like, <laughs> so um, I do love all that. And then, you know, I think that this is really the moment where Zuko, like for the series going forward, decides, okay, I am not cut out for this. I, I don't belong here. I thought I wanted this, but now I really know I don't want it. And that's when he comes out of the war meeting and May's waiting for him to hear, you know, what, how it was, how it went. And he, you know, he's like, oh, it was great. But like, I didn't feel like me, like I wasn't me. And that's when he, I think, really decides like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. And we yeah. see that well, decision. I think he literally says, I think he was like, um, I was at his right hand. Like I was at his right seat, like right on his right side, but he's still... He seems like happy about it, but still like conflicted about it at the same time. Like he's like, I don't feel like me, just like you said, Amanda. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, he, he has he, he has that real that real struggle that started, yeah. you know, way back at the end of season two with that whole metamorphosis that he underwent. And, you know, we as an audience have been kind of keeping our our breath held about it going, OK, well, what was all that about? Is he just it struggling with his guilty conscience? And no, this episode really does lay bare um, in his own words that, you know, it's not he's not being himself. He's being he's there at his father's right hand. He's there at the war meeting. He was the perfect prince, mm -hmm. but he wasn't himself. He isn't that. And it's it's it really drives home what Uncle Iroh said when he confronted him in the Lake Laogai episode when he said, Prince Zuko, you know, who are you? And what do you want? Yes, exactly. And I think those words have continued to echo for him. Who are you and what do you want? And here he's been in the Fire Nation again. Who is he and what does he want? And as you've been saying, Amanda, you know, he's getting what he wants, but it doesn't match with who he is. He says mm -hmm. he wants something, he's getting it, but it's no longer fulfilling him because he's not that person he used to be anymore, where this would have satisfied him and he would have gone back to his old life. He's outgrown it now. And, you know, good for him and it's about time. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's, it's just funny to me because, like, I'm thinking back to, you know, the flashbacks of when he was younger and he was never the perfect prince. Like that's the whole no. reason he got banished because he spoke out when, you know, someone that was trained in how to be, you know, the perfect prince or, you know, someone that was obedient and didn't speak out. Um, like that's not who he is. He's never been the perfect prince. So that's why we love him. And that's exactly why he got banished because he wasn't what Fire Lord Ozai was wanting out of a son and out of an heir. And like, so why would he think that that would be what he is now like it's not 
So I just think it's kind of interesting, um, you know, looking back at where he started and where he is now and like, yeah, honey, you're not supposed to be the perfect prince. Like that's the opposite of what you need to be. That's why he's so relatable. Like he's so, he's yeah. so relatable more than Azula. I mean, even though Azula has her relatable moments, but um like want to get your a foot rub or your hair washed. <laughs> he's, yeah, he well, Azula. I mean, she can get angry and stuff, which I can get relatable to that, you know. But like angry with your siblings, not throwing turtle ducks at them and their rocks at turtle ducks <laughs> and stuff like that. But um, right. But Zuko's just so relatable because he is imperfect. He's like honestly kind of makes him the perfect prince in a way. And even though he doesn't know it or doesn't think it, doesn't believe in himself, I feel like he definitely has the qualities to be a good prince possibly in the future. Yeah, mm -hmm. because he, he has the ability to be taught and he has the ability to listen. And he listens even through his anger. He always has. He's, uh, you know, even down in, in season one at the very start when he was just impetuous, angry Zuko and capturing the Avatar is all that matters. Even when that he was at that stage, he still listened. Mm -hmm. The things that people, that Uncle Iroh said to him would sink in. Sometimes it would take an entire episode to sink in, but they'd still sink in. And he still made even baby steps forward that way. So, mm -hmm. Zuko, they grow up so fast. <laughs> I know, right? The meeting of the Zuko Stan Club is now adjourned. Oh, I love Zuko. <laughs> I'm totally a Zuko Stan, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we love Zuko. Um, but, you know, but getting getting back to, to the real focus of the episode, though, in terms of Aang... Boy, oh boy, this poor kid. I I really got to say, man, it's four days until you send a 12-year-old kid to go beat up the baddest man alive, as Mr. Plan, Mr. Schedule said um, so aptly. I love how everyone else is just getting a perfect night's sleep. You got to wonder how they don't have any nerves. They're like, huh, we have perfect faith in Aang. He'll go kill the fire <laughs> for us. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's... Uh... Well, I think it's because they know that Aang has to be the one to defeat the Fire Lord in the end, um, whether it's through the invasion or through some other way. And so they're like, you got this, boy. You've been training for this. You're basically since we met you. So we believe in you. You got this. Boy, I can't wait to send a 12-year-old to his death. I can sure sleep well at night. <laughs> right. And, and um, it's Sokka with the comment. He was like, what did he say? He said, um... You don't need firebending. It's a stupid element, anyways. And Aang's just like, <laughs> he's just like, dude, I need firebending. Like, what? But I'm literally facing the Fire Lord. <laughs> but, but at least I loved the fact that they were there for Aang throughout the entire episode, even though it was kind of comedy and like, you know, the little sheep and stuff running around and like mm -hmm. the. Just the, scream into a pillow, hand the sheep to Aang. Like the, yeah, in the. Aang screaming into the sh yeah the koala sheep is one of my favorite animal designs in all of avatar they i love so it cute <laughs> i wish that they would make plushies of them like like life-size giant plushies that i could scream into <laughs> so cute. i love how she wants them not to cuddle but to scream into which is <laughs> yep. me too so honestly bad. that sounds like koala great therapy. sheep the amazing, the memeable, the screamable koala sheep. Yes. <laughs> Ages four and up. Also, I started cracking up at the way they, like, 
Katara, Sokka, and Toph each had like their own ways of therapy for Aang. <laughs> like um, Katara with the hot yoga, and then <laughs> Sokka with the mustache and beard like therapy session. <laughs> and then what did Toph do? She she did like the banging rocks, right, or the banging the earth bending. That was so funny. I loved that. How they kind of brought their own personalities in to try to help yeah, the Aang. acupuncture. Yes, <laughs> the acupuncture, yes. <laughs> and yet and yet none of them work. <laughs> Poor kid. Poor I know. You know I love it. I, there's while there's comedy in them though, and they are hilarious. I mean <laughs> I mean, let's face it though, but by the time that you get all the way to where Aang is good and sleep deprived, his whole dream sequence of telling <laughs> Katara how he feels and he goes <laughs> baby you're my forever girl <laughs> I was dead <laughs> that actually begs the question Savannah are you mm -hmm. like where do you stand in the avatar ships? oh here are we you... go yeah I'm, I'm curious are you a Katang get, the lines are being drawn I might get yeah. a little crap for this I might get a little crap but I'm I'm honestly a fan of Sutara but <laughs> Oh no, we are too. Welcome to the welcome to the club. But right. I do not I don't dislike Aang and Katara together. I don't dislike it. Yeah. Like I think they're super cute. But I feel like Zuko and Katara would have been really adorable too. <laughs> yeah. I think that they like Aang and Katara are obvious, but they're very cute. Um I feel like if they had gone the route of, you know, putting Katara and Zuko together, that it would have been much more like complicated and layered and nuanced of a relationship just because there's a lot of history between them and they'd have to work through a lot of stuff. But I think that if they did, they would have worked out. And I have a feeling just like this gut feeling that they might actually do that in the Netflix live action. I think because they aged up Katara for some reason, I don't know why. And how many years did they like, age her up? I forgot. I think that they did it two years because she's supposed to be, I think, 13 or 14 in the uh, show. And I think that they aged her up to be about 16, 15 or 16. Um, so that's much closer to Zuko's age than like Aang. I just I can't see because the actor for Aang is actually 12 years old. The actress for Katara is like 16, I believe. So I'm like, I don't see that happening unless they just don't do the romance at all. Which Yeah, I and maybe they happen. just leave it out. I don't know. That'll be yeah, interesting. I'm kind of excited to see it, though. Yeah, honestly, I, that's gonna. If they do do that, half the fan base is gonna be really excited. The other half is gonna be like, "What the fuck did you just do?" I mean, <laughs> it's kind of. It is admittedly, it is kind of weird in life. It's it's easier to pull off in an animated series than it is to have an actual twelve year old and a fifteen year old be like, "I love you" and kiss. Right. I'm like, I can't imagine yeah, the fandom being into that. Like, you know. Yeah, that's why it's like, I don't know. They may just drop it all together, but it really it's not integral to this to this series, but their romance, like, it continues into Legend of Korra with their children. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, that's kind of a big thing to cut, you know what I'm saying? So I don't know. I don't know what they're gonna plan maybe on doing. Maybe they'll maybe they'll at least dwell on it a little bit more because I mean the whole Zatara thing is only kind of, it's only an undertone. It, mm -hmm. like, like the closest they actually get to actually entertaining it is which episode was it where she almost used the healing thing on it? Was it Lake Lao Guy? 
No, it was the crossroads of destiny. The crossroads the of destiny. Yeah. Right. Yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah, she was so close, and like that's the only real, I think, tactile Zutara moment there of like actual connection and tender understanding between them. And then they just ripped it away from us. I know. Right. Well, I'm glad you guys are on the same page as me because I always feel so alone. <laughs> oh, we're we're giant, like not only Zatara, but like I'm sure you're also a Raylo shipper. <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, only only toxic relationships, only toxic <laughs> ships in here. Exactly. <laughs> That's all we allow. Uh, <laughs> Nothing geez. wholesome or sweet. No, never. Um, it has it's, to be angsty. It's the rawness. It's the realness of it. It's the drama. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, we uh, love it. Where were we anyway? Oh yeah, this shows about <laughs> Aang, isn't it? So anywho, um, yes. yeah, that kid. Yeah, no. So. Um, you know, on a serious note, uh, though, as I was as I was kind of edging the 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 commentary toward, while it is very funny and obviously there's lots of comedy involved in it, everything from you know Ang Ang being tortured in his dreams by the most classic bad dreams, realizing you don't have any pants on and people are laughing at you. Oh no, I didn't study for my math test that I forgot was today like those things are very real and they're very terrifying but having something looming at over you that is causing you so much anxiety and so much stress that it's not just stealing your sleep it's making you feel inadequate in your waking hours to be ready for the thing you're worried about and the compounding of your anxiety with the fatigue of not sleeping like boy I can tell you, I know plenty about that. I'm sure you do too. But like, it reminds me of when I was working really, really hard. I, I create all these imaginary deadlines for myself as a as a writer. Like, Amanda, you have real deadlines. You have real <laughs> dates and times when people are expecting your work in. As a, as a writer, a self-published writer, I don't have any of that. But I do have time frames in which I would like these things to be done. And then there's other things in my like in my life I want to get to with the free time I have afterwards. So I like push and push and push myself. And I remember, uh, I remember last December. Am I quoting a Taylor Swift song? I remember last December <laughs> really pushing myself hard to get my book out. And I was like sleepless. I would be like staying up super late nights working on it. Literally any moment of the day when I wasn't at my full time job or sleeping, I would be working on the book. And I would be like raw like mentally and emotionally from doing that for like a month and a half solid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that has been me this entire month. <laughs> My car oh, no. issues. Yeah. With the insurance and for anybody that doesn't know, which most people probably listen to this. Um, I got into a car wreck at the beginning of this month and my car got totaled and so I've been dealing with like customer service and new insurance policies and finding a new car and just like all the stress that comes with a car wreck. Um, and, you know, it's yeah, there were nights I just genuinely could not sleep because I was so stressed about the situation that I was in. And thankfully now we've got it all taken care of. Hopefully, God, please. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it was a really, really rough couple of weeks like man i i feel angry in this episode for sure i feel like that's another beautiful part of this episode even though it may not be the most popular episode in the series um it's so relatable just like you you guys explained like lots of people even though you know what we're not all earth water 
fire Aaron Benders, you know, like I Speak wish we were. Yourself. I wish <laughs> I really you wish I were. I guess I'm like Sokka, a non-bender. But um <laughs> it's so relatable. It's very relatable because we've all had like whether you're a child like Aang's age or you're an adult, it's so relatable. We've all had those sleepless nights, you know, those issues in school or those issues at work or issues with family. So I, I do like that. That's what I meant by the serious part of the episode Zuko and that part. And then also the comedy in it. And you know, what's you know, what's another facet too of the stress that he experiences, which I feel like, especially as adults is so relatable. And I think less so to kids, but more so to adults or teenagers watching the show is this issue of burning yourself out, trying to succeed mm-hmm. because because as Katara is there watching, it's not like, a, oh, you don't need to be worried. Oh, you need to get more sleep. It's it's not that he is just anxious. He's keeping himself busy, stressing over how ready he is. And he's putting himself backward by doing it. Because in trying to prepare more, all he's doing is just looking for outlets for his anxiety. And he's fatiguing himself and wearing himself out. He's becoming less ready. And like that's a huge thing that I've had to combat personally is burnout because when you're working really hard day after day after day and you are on your own schedule, it's very hard to pace yourself. Like being an indie writer is tough because you don't have deadlines. It is entirely open-ended. And if you decide that you just feel like you're not being productive enough, like Aang, you can really just wear yourself down. No one's making you do it except you. And it's just you beating yourself up saying, I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing enough, until you just finally hit a wall and, you know, start imagining that your animal companions are having a sword duel, <laughs> <laughs> which is extremely relatable for me. I don't know about for you two. <laughs> totally. Oh my gosh. What did, what did, uh, what did Momo say? You're about a few plums short of a fruit pie. But I was like, oh, jeez. <laughs> And Dee Bradley Baker voicing um, Momo in that scene when he talks. I don't know who voiced Appa, but I do know that it was Dee that did. uh, Yeah, yeah. He well, he does the noises. I don't know if you know this, but he does the noises for Momo and Appa. Oh, jeez! I guess I didn't know that about Momo and Appa. Why does he he sound so crazy different between each animal? (laughs) Oh, I know. He's so good, and. also, he, not for this series, but for Legend of Korra, he voices Tarlock. So I'm like, this guy is no so way. talented. No way. Yeah. All right. And he voices I need a bunch to look of, like, this guy and... up because that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And for you, since you told us that you were watching Clone Wars, he voices all the clones. So, like, <laughs> he just had mind blown moments. <laughs> yeah, this what guy voices your childhood. <laughs> that is crazy. That is so cool. I love that. Yeah, he was fantastic. Oh, I'm so glad they used him even more in Legend of Korra because, you know, his animal noises are great, but he's a great just normal voice actor as well. Um, <clears throat> so I just, we didn't bring it up yet, but one of my favorite jokes, like there's a lot of really funny jokes in this episode, but for some reason, my personal favorite is <laughs> when Hang wakes up and um, he talks to Sokka and he's talking about like how, oh, we were trying to climb a mountain, but you were too slow. <laughs> And like <laughs> he tells him, climb that mountain, climb it fast. <laughs> just like Sokka does it, like he's so angry, but he does it anyway. <laughs> and then <laughs> see him like falling in the background. 
and then Toph, and then I think Toph starts drinking water, and he's like, "Don't do that! It's poison!" And she's like, "What?" She just spits it all over Katara. It's like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> "You need to start wearing your hair up. You got caught in a train." <laughs> oh my god! A train. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of comedy, but a lot of seriousness too. That's what I like about the episode. There's a lot of balance. Okay. And okay, okay, we have seen episodes before, too, that, like, have very jarring, like, changes in tone between the comedy and the seriousness. But I really think this episode is extremely well done, and I think it really weaves that together. I think, you know, we were just talking about how John O'Brien, he, 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 he has written two very different episodes, one that pulled off the tone it was going for amazingly in the library, and one that it's kind of like, okay, what's the tone of this episode supposed to be, and where exactly are we going on with all of this in the headband? And for me, I gotta say, this episode, I think, really falls more on the library side of things. Yeah, sure, it isn't as epic, um, just due to the nature of the story involved, but I think, personally, it does a really good job in, you know, getting across the messages that it wants to. I think it illustrates um, both in a comedic way, so it's not too heavy, but also with notes of very real seriousness, you know, everything that Aang is going through. It makes it digestible, but also really gets across for us the struggle he's having. Um, I think it also, you know, does really well with the stuff with Zuko, uh, indicating where he's going, and it makes great use of just very, you know, compared to Aang, very little time in the episode, you know, before that. So, um, yeah, it, it really, it really, really does, um, a really good job. And I gotta say, for myself overall, I mean, unless there's more commentary you guys have to give, I feel like... Uh, my rating on this is actually probably like an 8.2. I actually really enjoyed this episode a lot. Ooh. What do you think, Savannah? What would you rate this episode out of 10? Um, I would say between like a 7 and 7.5. Um, just because, I mean, I felt like it was kind of a buildup, which I know we're getting to the next episode next. But um, mm-hmm. I just... I love the silliness of it, but I totally agree with Todd, what he just said. Um, I would give it probably a 7.5. And I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually going to agree with you because I think, you know, that this, I wouldn't call this, this is an interesting episode because I wouldn't really call it filler since we do want that kind of pre-battle episode um, of Aang dealing with the nerves and all that. But um it's just, I think it's the way it goes about it that makes it feel almost like a filler. Like, it's like a crack dream or something. <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. Aang hitting the cactus juice almost. but um, <laughs> Or the writers maybe hitting the cactus juice. But um, Yeah, but John. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I do like it. I think it's very funny. And I like the kind of balancing out um, the silliness with, you know, Zuko and um, him kind of falling into his prince role. Um, so yeah, I would give it a solid 7.5 out of 10. Definitely not, you know, a high point of the season, but certainly not like a low point either. Nice, nice. Well, that brings us then to the next episode, or rather episodes, because uh, The Day of the Black Sun is a two-parter, and we'll be covering both part one and part two as one episode. So um, I am going to read the stats on both. They are separate. They have different uh, writers and directors and actually different animations. So we'll just run through that before our commentary. Um, 
Episode 10, Day of the Black Sun Part 1, is written by Michael Dante DiMartino. Always nice to see the show creators stepping in and getting their hands on this year. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's directed by my boy, Giancarlo <laughs> Volpe. Yes, sir. Uh, it's animated by JM Animation, and the episode aired November 30th, 2007. Um, I'm actually going to save the IMDb ratings for the end, um, okay. just so we can compare them last of all. Uh, episode three, uh, excuse me, episode 11, The Day of the Black Sun Part 2, is written by Aaron Ihaj. It's directed by a name we're very well acquainted with in Season 3, uh, Joaquim Dos Santos. It's animated by Moy Animation, which, by the way, I find it really funny that for a two-parter that, yeah, sure, different people would write it and different people would direct it, but to literally change animation studios midstream between part one and part two surprised me. <laughs> like, why? If I remember correctly, they actually did that for um, the Winter Sol- not the Winter Solstice, oh my gosh. Um, the, wow, why am I blanking on the name? The finale for season one. The, the season of the North. Siege of the North. That's what I was thinking of. Oh my right. gosh! Wow, that yeah, that no, just same. Yeah, off. They, they, yeah, they switched animation styles halfway through. Like, well, I think it might be because the you know these two parters are a very big undertaking. You know, for everybody, for the writers, for you know the actors, and I'm sure for the animation team. So it makes sense that like they would want to split them up. Um, and I believe for the four part finale, like each episode. You know, they. I think that they split up the finale. Two episodes were done by Moy Animation, and then two were done by JM Animation. Um, again, because it kind of splits up the workload a bit. The the entire series, though, correct me if I'm wrong, does pretty much alternate back and forth between the the animation houses, doesn't they? Yes. Yeah, there's only like maybe once or twice in like the entire series i think where back-to-back -back episodes are animated by the same animation house mm -hmm. just yeah um the uh part two aired on the exact same date november 30th 2007 now the ratings for these for part one the imdb rating was 9.1 out of 10 and for part two is a whopping 9.4 out of 10 mm-hmm take us away with some fun facts amanda all right so our first fun fact is that the idea of an oppressive leader using a secret bunker during war is similar to how adolf hitler utilized his own bunker i actually thought of that like before i even looked up these fun facts i because i didn't really think about that as a kid but i was like wait a minute a secret bunker a dictator <gasps> oh sorry is hitler confirmed <laughs> I mean, Secret kind of bunker yeah, <laughs> under <bunker>. the mountain <laughs> and die oh, and geez. die. <laughs> oh, gosh. oh man! Oh, I, uh, I just remember the end of that song about fighting the fire lord and die. <laughs> love it um and then our second fun fact is that peanuts are an ingredient in dynamite, giving merit to the mechanist's attempt to make a peanut sauce bomb, which I did not know that that like how are peanuts i don't get like how are peanuts an ingredient in a dynamite the question you want to be asking yourself is how are peanuts not integral <laughs> to a dynamite you ever think about that no no, no you i can honestly say i've never thought about that look it up kids <laughs> yeah look it up um our third fun fact is that this is the last episode in the series where ang is seen with hair as he shaves it off um as everybody prepares for the invasion 
And I, I don't know. I think that this look that he has during the invasion and basically for the rest of the series is his best look. I love the kind of integration of the air nomad uh, robes, but also the fire nation down below with the pants and the shoes and everything. Like, I think it's a perfect match and it's so iconic of a look for him um, with the shaved head and all that. So like, honestly, like I love the hair, but I think that this is his best look. So like he can keep the hair, like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't grow it out in the Goku style? No? Nope. <laughs> that would have been cool. That would have been cool. No Kakashi. Um, our fourth and final... <laughs> <Okay. laughs> <laughs> um, our fourth fun fact is that Hakoda sports the same symbol on his military uniform as Princess Yue had on her betrothal necklace. So I was kind of wondering about this because I actually I noticed mm -hmm. that this... Yeah, this time around, I know. I just wonder if they both have that symbol... Like, is there a significance to that symbol? Because it's it's a very, you know, it's, I don't know how to really describe the way that it looks, but it is it is a very striking symbol. And I just wonder if it means something in the Water Tribe that they would both have it on, you know, their uniform or their betrothal necklace. Um, but that's yeah, just a nice way to kind of tie yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably a message to the Fire Nation. It's just like, it's Water Tribe for... <laughs> right? <laughs> Fuck it's off. Big old... <laughs> Big old middle finger. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then our fifth and final fun fact for these two episodes is that the world-famous tennis player Serena Williams voices Iroh's kind Fire Nation guard, Ming. I actually did know that before looking up these fun facts, because that was on one of the Avatar what? Extra. Yeah. For some reason, the fam world-famous tennis player Serena Williams was asked, hey, do you want to voice a one-off character in Avatar? sure oh my gosh that's wow what wow <laughs> i'm sorry mind blown <laughs> well especially because i'm a really big fan of like professional tennis and the really? the uh, AT atp and wta tours oh yeah like okay during during tennis season between like the australian open all the way through tennis season through wimbledon and the french open at roland garros just any given moment you walk through the house like there's tennis matches on of whatever tournament big or small is being played like i love this and like serena williams actually just this past year had her like victory tour her like last tour where she played through everything and everywhere she went was just like an, an homage to her long and, and incredible you know history making career so like kind of fitting that we would kind of cap off this year by doing the podcast with her as a voice how unexpected yeah i had no idea that you uh like tennis so much todd that's something new i just learned about you you didn't know i did martial arts you didn't know that i <laughs> you, you don't know anything do you really even know me did you know me before we started this how much closer we are now <laughs> I think she's she has a very gentle voice, and I honestly didn't even know that it was her until um, I think until I watched later on, like whenever I was older, and I was like, no way, that's Serena Williams, but she played that part perfectly. Like it, her voice is just so gentle. You know, I brought you an extra bowl of rice, I brought you your favorite tea. I just thought she did a really great job on that. <laughs> 
So, well, and anybody who knows Serena knows that when she's out on the court, that her heart is out on the court with her. She's a very heartfelt player. Her highs, her lows, her disappointments, her like when she's pumped up, it's all out there on the court. Like she can't repress those emotions no matter what. So I can see how she would take very strongly to the voice coaching and just like the softness and the compassion or like the, the genuine confusion of like, no, you know, I, I don't, I'll be here tomorrow. <laughs> it's like, no, you should take the afternoon off. <laughs> yeah. You know? I can, like, she did really well with it, but like knowing how she is, I could see why those emotions would come through. That's great. Yeah. So how do you guys want to tackle this since it's a two-parter? Do you just want to kind of go through, you know, in the order of the events or... <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I'll, I'll start and just kind of lead off with, I think that the most amazing way they could have started off this two-parter is how they did it, which is just bringing everybody back to their roots. You know, Aang, as you mentioned, shaving his hair, uh, you know, um, Sokka and Katara get back into their water tribe outfits, which apparently they've just been carrying with them this entire time. <laughs> right. I, I they guess. just really I'm like just... the Fire Nation clothes. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah like i i really love it savannah how about you about like the way they started off this episode um i just i honestly this is one of my favorite episodes um i'd say it's in my top four or five in the whole series wow how no wow I oh i thought surprised. you said how that's hype it's awesome how i challenged that wow hot <laughs> hot take there savannah <laughs> um i just love um how they kind of like we were just talking about hair how like they shaved Aang, like ang was shaving his hair and screen to screen like the next take was zuko taking down his hair like taking it out of the ponytail and I felt like that was really big, like symbolism for change. Like, yeah, because ponytail Zuko is mean Zuko, according to your exactly. Child. <laughs> You're getting. It. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, but and then I just thought the the whole invasion was really awesome, and like the kiss, like the kiss. Like, can we talk about the mm -hmm. kiss? Yeah, we need to go right to the kiss immediately. Like, <laughs> a, a the the huge Chad energy right there from Aang, just the giga Chad. Tell her, but what if I don't come back? Kiss her, refuse to elaborate, leaves. That <laughs> was a little savage, but I felt like it was a little like kind of appropriate for their age because you know they're kind of awkward, and that was their first kiss. So like, it's kind of I don't what know. And it? also, I don't think. Aang knew if he was going to live, honestly. He was like, what if I don't make it? So mm -hmm. I felt like he should have kissed her before leaving. And actually, that's not their first kiss, because if you remember in the Cave of Two Lovers, that's how they got out of it. Oh, cave. you're right. You're right. You're totally right. Yeah. I forgot about that. I guess that was their fair, first like visible it. kiss. It's their first kiss in the daylight. He kissed her in front of God <laughs> and everybody out there. like <laughs> <laughs> Right. In front, of Dakota, in front of Appa, right in front of my salad, <laughs> right in front well, of my salad. Really? And the only the only person who didn't see it was Toph. Mm, too bad. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, that was man. pretty funny. Toph would laugh at that. She would laugh. She at would. That. <laughs> I can hear you guys doing something over there. She can. Incredible. She can like see it through the floors. 
<laughs> the force. <laughs> That's how that works. Not seismic sense. Can, the force. They can... can sense everything going on in that room. <laughs> so senses aren't that well attuned. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I also never noticed this, but while they're all getting like ready in the submarine things that Sokka invented, which um I thought it was hilarious whenever the mechanic guy um was like your your picture was hard to burn, but I figured it out. <laughs> he has a, um, the amazing blueprints. Yes. That's like um, so elaborate. It's one of my favorite running jokes. Like it's kind of a subtle running joke, but I love it that Sokka is just a terrible artist. He like, really is. And it's actually kind of cute, I feel like, but whatever. Like when he makes the wanted post they're not the wanted posters, but the help posters for Appa. He has to explain, yes. like, those are his horns. Like he's so sweet. Um, I never realized, like, I guess it's pretty obvious that um, Hakoda had a different colored helmet whenever they left for battle. But, like, Sokka and the other warriors or soldiers, like, they all had gray ones, and Hakoda had a black one. And I never knew that their helmets represented their their ranking in their tribe. And I never realized that. Cool and I detail. thought that was pretty cool. So, I guess the darker the helmet, the higher rank you are. So... I never realized there's like that. The, there's like there's like the white helmeted guy all the way in the back whose job is just to clean up Appa's poop. Like, at oh the end really? I didn't even there. notice that. <laughs> yeah, look, yeah, real real close in the back. The details you miss. <laughs> right. I gotta say though, since we're talking about the uniforms and all that, this is by far my favorite look for Sokka. Like the the full oh, warrior man. getup, the helmet. He just is mwah. He looks great and. I love that they kind of incorporate because, you know, when we first see him in the very first episode, he's got the warrior wolf paint on and now he's got like the full helmet and the armor. And I'm like, my boy grows up so fast. I know, I right? He looks so I love great. Sokka. While we could just like still walk through the entire episode, like pace by pace, kind of like stepping over all the big narrative points, though. Let's be honest, the best way to take this on is really just to focus in on each character and where they go, you know, uh -huh. through this entire two-parter. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, sure, we all, we all watch the episode. We know what happens during the course of the big battle that moves them from outside the Fire Nation through and past the defenses and then pushes into the city. And we'll talk about, you know, the final fight, of course. But, like, Sokka, as long as we're on the subject, boy, oh boy, the arc he has in this two-parter from... Mm -hmm. At the very start, before they even get going, yeah, he gets all armed and ready for battle, but he goes to give his presentation of the battle plan and just falls all over himself and just embarrasses mm -hmm. himself in front of everybody. Yeah. Poor Sokka. I know. I kind of felt like he... Which Sokka and his dad are very similar. They have a lot of the same traits, like bravery, and then I think uh, Bato towards one of the beginning of the seasons like um the same sense of humor yes the Bottom same the sense tribe. of humor he's like you're just like your dad which i feel yeah. like they are very similar but Sokka's still Sokka, you know he's still himself so i feel like Sokka just got a little nervous and which and he's also a lot younger but um, he just got oh he got overstimulated you know yeah we got in there. i would too are you kidding and like ang said um it's just it's just public speaking. Like everybody's bad at that. I think Aang says that at one point, like after the speech. Yep. So yeah. I really I really appreciated mm -hmm. Sokka in this episode. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and Aang even during that whole, you know, scene where Sokka's talking to him about how, you know, embarrassed and how he just totally ruined his moment to shine, like, Aang literally tells him, like, that wasn't your moment. Your moment is going to be on the battlefield where he absolutely shines. He takes charge. Like, you know, Mm kind of skipping ahead a bit, like, when his dad gets hurt, which scared me so much as a kid, because I really thought that they were going to orphan poor Sokka and Katara. I was worried about it, too. I was like, don't you dare. Don't you dare, <laughs> not, guys. Not Don't Daddy do this to us. <laughs> Especially Hakoda, I, man. <laughs> I know. I told Sokka, or I told, I was going to call you Sokka. I, called, I think that is such a huge compliment to be <laughs> confused and called Sokka. Hey, Sokka, Thank I'll you. call you Sokka from now on. <laughs> right. Um, I was telling Todd when we were first introduced to Hakoda, you know, way back when, that he is the daddiest daddy in this entire show. Like, he is the hottest <laughs> character. I love him. Dude, he really is. I won't, I'm not going to deny a thing. Yeah, no, like, I can see where Sokka gets his good looks. Hakoda is something. Do I need to to leave you girls alone and, like, step away from the desk for a little bit here? It sounds like you have important things to discuss here, so I'm just going (laughs) to... We're fine, we're fine. Um, But anyway, yeah, no, I love that Sokka really does step up and take charge when Hakoda gets hurt and isn't able to lead the mission, basically. Um... And the, I always get chills with this particular part where he, you know, he tells people, I want you in wedge formation. We're, we're heading up and we're going to take the palace. And he gets on top of Appa. He unsheaths his space sword and he just yells, charge. And I'm just like, oh, I yes, I get so hyped up. Oh, my God. Me too. I was watching it. I was just, as soon as he said charge, I was just like, yeah. Like I was watching Vikings on his Let's channel or something. I was, like, yeah. <laughs> I was pumped. Right? I was like, this man can lead me into battle any day. Literally. Um, so what about like obviously we'll leave Aang for last because that's you know oh, oh well oh, I guess what, real 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 quick thing about Sokka though. I was who else say. besides me noticed immediately that the space sword can cut through metal. Like what? <laughs> He's just cutting yeah. through like tank barrels and like what? Oh yeah, you'll see that sword in action a lot in the finale. It's it's a really, really good weapon. <laughs> I um, just want at some point Sokka to pick up the sword and hold it straight up and go, I have the power. <laughs> yes. He really um, does, though. I mean, that sword is awesome. Mm-hmm. All the power. But since we're on Sokka, there is um, one other thing that in the second part that we haven't really touched on. And that is when they've got Azula basically cornered and she has no firebending, she uses Sokka basically as a was it what's the word um well she as a distraction so that they waste all the time that they had to look for the fire lord and she mentions suki and because i remember todd that you had asked like where what happened to suki with azula and the kyoshi warriors like and i was like oh just wait (laughs) she'll become she'll be back um yeah so uh my stress levels are so high again now (laughs) I know, right? Um, but I love that, like, that's all it takes for Sokka to lose focus and lose sight of what the mission is, is, like, the mention of Suki. And that that just, he gets so emotional and so just, like, flips on a dime. And it's, again, really great voice acting from Jack DeSena, who just, I mean, he kills it every time, but, like, especially in this scene. Um, 
And the fact that Azula was about to shank him, she straight up had one of May's stilettos and she was going to stab him. And if Toph hadn't like intervened, she would have died. Like, that's crazy. That's mm-hmm. Azula for yeah. you. Oh, yeah. Always got to trick up <laughs> our sleeve, insane. quite literally. Also, insane. a thing that I wanted to mention before she like tricks. Um, well, she's not tricking him because she's not lying. But Azula tells right. um, Sokka about Suki. Um, Zuko walks in between like scenes. He walks into the room and says, "I'm ready. Like I've, I'm ready to face you now." Another thing that I was confused about and that I didn't notice until this time around, um, he tells his father that the Avatar isn't dead. And that I was surprised that Ozai, he acted surprised. Like, mm-hmm. why didn't Azula tell him beforehand? Like, why did she keep it secret? Well, I think that that, like, that's that's a good question. And I think that the whole reason is because that gives her basically blackmail information against Zuko. Against because Zuko. if she keeps okay. it, yeah, if she keeps it secret that, oh, he's actually alive, um then that's something that she can use against Zuko whenever she needs to. So I think that she kept the facade up that, oh yeah, he killed him. Like he's totally dead, maybe. So she (laughs) kind of used both of them in a way. Oh yeah. I know, like that's the thing. She is a master manipulator and she knows how to get what she wants and how to play people like a fiddle, so... Well, and you know, since since we've segued over to Zuko... You know, one of hitting on that exact note that you're talking about, Savannah. Um, you know, that was leverage held over Zuko's head because how do I say this right to phrase it right? In season one, it was held over Zuko's head that he needed to capture the avatar in order to be accepted by his father again. And when they defeat Aang at the end of season two he's brought back to the fire nation and he's he is heralded to his father and everybody in the fire nation as he's the one who killed the avatar and so there's this idea that once he comes back he is so overwhelmingly warmly welcomed get it fire nation warm welcome uh, he's so warmly welcomed by his his father and everybody in the fire nation that killing the avatar like the fact that he is credited for ang's death and defeat is kind of just like on the side because the the overwhelming affection and acceptance he gets almost makes it seem like his father wasn't holding that against him that oh yeah you're my son of course why wouldn't i take you back of course here sit here at my right hand at the military meeting like it's natural almost like the avatar didn't matter because i think that zuko if if this is not too complex an idea to put across I think that Zuko's wishful thinking was that his father loves him and accepts him and didn't need him to kill the Avatar to be accepted back. He just loved him and wanted him back. And Azula laying that little trap there is, well, if he ever finds out, it's not so much, oh, he'll reject you, his bubble will be burst that Mm -hmm. his father's love and acceptance is right back where it was in season one nothing ever changed it's still conditional and all of it will be taken away from him if he finds out that ang is still alive i guess i was just a little tripped up because you know how like azula is always kind of like you know 
at her dad's side, you know, totally wanting to be Fire Lord someday, you know, she wants, she's the princess, like, um, so I guess I just found it kind of interesting how Zuko. Well, you know, his, his coming in and telling his father that is him taking ownership that I don't need the love and acceptance. I'm willing to risk it. I think knowing what the answer and knowing what the response was going to be, he put it out there because he's like, sure, maybe go ahead, burst my bubble. Tell me that it was all just a facade and that I'm just as useless and expendable as a son to you as I ever was because I'm ready for mm-hmm. it now. It's so good. I'm so proud of him. Yeah. Our boy. <laughs> that <laughs> that whole scene of um, Zuko confronting Ozai and just, you know, watching an abuse person basically speak out against their abuser and say that no what you did was wrong and it was cruel and how could you ever justify a duel with a child like like just calling him out for all the horrible heinous things that he's you know put Zuka through um whether it was you know disowning him burning him banishing him and then now bringing him back but on a conditional level like you were saying um it's complete evil and so you know i love seeing that that zuko has broken the this cycle of abuse that he's was brought up in and you know and fire lord ozai his only retaliation is that you know he did all that to teach him respect which is just such bullshit it's it's it, so, it is yeah i'm like you are the worst <laughs> sir you are the worst um <laughs> And yeah, he has no real rebuttal for anything that Zuko says because he knows it's true. Like he is a terrible person, a terrible father. Um, And so he doesn't like try to reason or argue with him about it. And so, and then, you know, you get to this big grand um, reveal, which is that Zuko's been waiting for this whole time, which is, you know, don't you want to know about your mother? And okay, he's okay, like, okay. But pump the brakes for one second on it. <laughs> okay. I want to stop before you go on. I love the crossfade between Azula's smug grin, uh, grin goading Sokka right over to Ozai, mm-hmm. and their faces are like that almost part, exactly identical. Mm-hmm. Visual storytelling. And, and right in that moment, you know who, like, who our villains really, truly are. That they are just like, you know, t- they're cut from the same cloth. He, mm-hmm. she is definitely, definitely a daddy's girl. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. She got all the worst traits from Ozai, none of the good from Ursa. Um, but uh, yeah, and honestly, he doesn't even really. The only major bomb that we get is that Ur- Ursa is still alive. And that shocks Zuko. He starts crying. And this is one of the times that he cries that I was talking about um, in one of our previous podcast episodes. But um, yeah, so we even get more hints as to what happened that night without fully spelling it out of, you know, your mother did vicious treasonous things that night. And for her transgression, she was banished. And, you know, and then obviously Zuko gets really emotional about that because he thinks he thought this whole... What? I'm sorry, the whole banishment thing it just made me like hear in Ozai's voice, it's like, run away, Ursa, run away and <laughs> never return. <laughs> I'm surprised that he spared her life, honestly, or possibly spared her life, if that's what he's saying. Like, that would surprise me from a guy as cruel as 
as Ozai. Well, let's think about it, though. If we're drawing the correlation now in this episode that Ozai and Azula are cut from the same cloth, we were just talking about why in the world would, you know, Azula leave this big hanging thing about crediting Zuko that the Avatar's alive. Well, it's leverage. Wouldn't right. Ozai dangle, oh, but your mother's alive. She's been banished. And when and how and to where, like, he, it would all be information he could dangle, you know, kill me and you'll never find out, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. That yeah, makes sense. And I don't, I don't know, Savannah, have you read the search, which explains what happens to Ursa after Avatar? Yes, I have the comic right over there. I never finished it, but I got like halfway through. <laughs> okay. I've never seen it and I don't know what happens. So no yeah, spoilers. So I, yeah, no, I'm not going to spoil I was just curious. Um, because I do. I have The Search, I, The Promise. That's the only two that I have. Yeah, because they certainly do give, not just, they don't just expand the story um, in terms of like what happens after Avatar, but they also give us a, big in-depth look at Ozai and Ursa's relationship before Zuko and Azula and when they're born, how that kind of changes their relationship. Um, so it's it's very interesting. And we definitely, when when the time comes, when we finish the show, um, I will definitely let you know about that, Todd, because it's a really good, interesting story that should have been its own either movie or miniseries because it's that good. Like, it's very fascinating. But um, we'll have to do a follow-up on it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, something something important I want to bring up about you know the a sort of an, an an autopsy, if you will, of the conversation between Zuko and and Ozai. There's also something very important about Zuko's um, the way he chooses to handle the entire confrontation. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of background on my insight in this. So I I know a thing or two about. Uh, about emotional abuse and some years ago i actually started a support group for people who are emotionally abused whether it's parental abuse or domestic abuse in relationships people at all stages of life every age who come into that group and they share a lot of stories and we share a lot of advice with people about things and one of the hardest things for people when they're confronting their abusers is that they want closure in the in the form of apology And it is the hardest thing. It holds people back from getting free. It holds people back internally from getting past it. And it even sometimes even is one of the things that makes them come back and return to that relationship. And people want that closure. They, They say to me all the time, I want to hear them say they're sorry. I want to hear them, you know, own it, own up to what they did and take ownership of it. And it's hard and as heartbreaking as it is, you can't do that. Zuko could have demanded his father take responsibility for everything. He could have said with swords pointed at his throat, I want to hear you say you're sorry. I want to hear at least some, some acknowledgement that, you know, you hear what I'm saying and that you're taking responsibility because you did this to me. And he doesn't. He doesn't do any of it. He does what a person in the healthiest and best way getting out of an abusive relationship and cutting that tie does. He reads them the riot act of everything they've done, listens to their response, and says, and now I am going to go and do this, 
he's not waiting because when you wait for somebody to give you an apology before you can move on and they don't, they are literally, you are literally enslaving yourself to them giving you permission to move on. And Zuko doesn't do that. He says, in fact, I'm going to go join the Avatar. See ya. And that's exactly what he needed to do. So from even like the standpoint of some seeing somebody getting out of an abusive relationship, like I was so proud of Zuko and that was just amazing. The things that the writers put into the show were just, it's just, I'm sorry. I see like so many people in these relationships. So it gets like, it's so good to see that it's, it's just, it's so good to see them integrate that in. It makes that me makes... almost wonder if, okay, good. sorry, it just, that makes me like so happy to hear you say that. And like, I also know people and I myself have gone through some things like that. So it's honestly a beautiful thing. And I feel like that's why I'm also so attached to Zuko as a character. Um, I just find him so relatable, even though, you know, ponytail Zuko is the bad guy, but, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. long hair Zuko is like, which I've also been ponytail Zuko in my lifetime. Maybe I haven't been hunting the avatar, but I've been, hunting for myself and hunting for my honor in a way. So um, I find that beautiful what you said and what you said, honestly, whenever Zuko stands up to his father, Ozai, that kind of reminds me of y'all's previous episode. I think it was the previous episode where you guys said that Iroh kind of stands up to Zuko in a way and tells him how it is tells him how it is even though it's harsh even like even though i don't think zuko or ozai takes things harshly because he's cold-hearted but um mm -hmm. he just he finally stands up and says no i'm not gonna like iroh was like no i'm not gonna you need to figure this out yourself zuko finally realized that and he was like okay this is what i need to do this is the path in life that i want to take doesn't matter about the background doesn't matter about what I've been through, it doesn't matter the people that I know, I know what I need to do to gain, to love myself and to gain my own honor. So I agree with you hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. And, and that's a great way you put it too. Like you, he wanted his honor back, but he was looking to everyone and everything around him to give himself, to give him that honor back, to win it back from people who he thought had taken it away from him. But he realized that, you know, Ozai doesn't have the power to take his honor or give it to him. He can give himself that honor. Mm -hmm. It really just kind of speaking to what you were just saying about, you know, the group that you had founded and all that, Todd, um, it makes me wonder if the creators or the writers may have gone to, you know, abuse survivors and been like, you know, what did you guys, how did you get out of there? Like, what did you say? What did you do? Um, because yeah, I think that, the way that Zuko went about it was probably the best way he could have done it. Um, you know, he, he did it and, you know, someone could say that this is cowardly to do it during an eclipse, you know, kind of like how Ozai points out. Um, but in reality, in the situation, he, that was the smartest thing he could have done because he is putting himself in a situation where he cannot be hurt. You know, he, he can walk out of that room without any kind of repercussions or being burned or anything like that. Um, and as you said, he stands up to him. He reads him for filth. He does not accept any apology or, you know, any excuses. And then he leaves. 
but not after delivering an amazing, you know, like literal blow with redirecting Ozai's own lightning back at him, which was just oh, the coolest fucking moment. Oh my god. The best. Every time. And how poetic is it that that was the, what he learned from Iroh? Mm -hmm. Everything he had just said, he learned from Iroh. And then the 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 lightning blast, he redirects it back, also having learned that from Iroh. Just... And he does not absorb that literal negative energy. He throws it right back in Ozai's face, and it is just so beautiful and... It also is really cool just on Ozai's part that, you know, the second that the eclipse ends, literally the second, he is able to generate so much lightning so fast. Like Azula, she usually has to build up to it. You know, she's younger and she doesn't have as much experience, but him, he just whips it out quite literally. And it is just breathtaking to look at. I just love how they animate lightning in this show. Um, it looks so beautiful, but so deadly. <laughs> and um, yeah. Yeah, it's that whole scene is just fantastic. And then he just leaves and he gets on that hot air balloon and he is right on the Avatar's tail, just like always. I love how he had like swords drawn. And then, you know, before the before the sun came back out behind the eclipse, um, Ozai was just like, why don't you kill me with the swords now? And Zuko put the swords back in their holders and he was like that's the avatar's duty like not mine i'm just telling you my peace of mind that's basically what he said mm. and then he left it's and so not good. my problem he's like good luck in the future bro like <laughs> hey he's gonna beat your ass <laughs> exactly it's like good luck <laughs> but anyways i loved it I loved that whole scene i thought zuko was so powerful i would say in my opinion I mean, I'm not like a director or writer or anything, but I would say Zuko was the star of that episode, 100%. He really steals the show in every episode he's in, doesn't he? Yes. Um, we we, so we literally take off a half a point from an episode's rating if Zuko's not in it. It's <laughs> <laughs> that good. Um, so I just kind of want to talk about, since we're talking about kind of Zuko's finale, I want to talk about um, Aang, Sokka, and Toph versus Azula, because this is one of my favorite fights, and no one ever talks about it, but it is so good. Like, and the crazy thing is that this is during the eclipse, so Azula is not really fighting back. She is just playing with them. It's like a cat and mouse kind of thing. She knows that she can beat them without her bending and so she's just playing with them and it's incredible because the gang are giving it their all they are on fire like they are throwing everything at her and she just keeps dodging and weaving and it's incredible to see such good choreography um and like i love oh my god i don't know if you had this shock moment todd or maybe you did savannah but when they first enter the throne room and she's the only one there um and, you know, she gets, I think it's Toph, like, covers her in rock, trying to keep her still. And then suddenly the, the rocks just crack. And you're like, hold up, <laughs> what just happened? Because I legit thought for some reason as a kid that she somehow gained the ability to earthbend by being in Bossing Say. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. And then obviously the Dai Li agents show up. But I was like, either A, she learned how to earthbend somehow, or B, 
she just has not skipped leg day. <laughs> like she just so pers- she took two Flintstone vitamins that morning and just <laughs> broke it apart. She's been working Literally. out with um, what's the Earth King's name? Boomy. Boomy. She's on the Boomy ten week exercise plan. Develops <laughs> that upper body like nuts, man. You wouldn't believe it. Yes, it just shocked me as a kid, and then obviously the Dali sh- agents show up, so it made sense. But I was like, oh, for a split second, I was like, what the fuck. <laughs> Uh, and even the even the gang were like, uh, "Excuse me, what just happened?" Um, but yeah, no, the whole confrontation, and I love the verbal confrontation as well. Like we were talking about with Sokka, um, and how he kind of puts it together that yeah, she's not even trying to win; she's just wasting our time. Like, so they try to walk away, and then she, of course, reels them back in because she's Azula and she's always got something up her sleeve. Um, it's just so good. It's so good. Can like I remember based off the part that you were just talking whenever um Azula like kind of traps Sokka in about Suki um mm-hmm. can Azula shoot or not Azula can uh Zuko shoot fire out of his feet like Azula can because at that moment she's uh, like tied up and she starts shooting fire out of her feet I can't remember does he I not mean, throw kicks and shoot fireballs I, in the he, series? I think I he might I think he, he does eventually it's been a while but. Yeah, no, he definitely can. That part was so cool. She was like all tied up and then she was like, oh, fire's back on. And then she just starts like (laughs) throwing fire out of her feet. And then she breaks herself free of Toph's like rock chains and she just does a split. I'm like, Azula, you are just too good. I cannot with you. You are such a bad bitch and I love it. I'm sorry though. I'm sorry though. Every single time there's like, especially when it's a group fight like this, I always just have this little bit of cynicism about how nerfed Toph is. Because we we have seen Toph solo some incredibly powerful adversaries before. Like Toph can just like absolutely gank an entire room full of people. But like the instant that we have to have a slippery opponent, she's like, oh no, she's too fast. I'm like, come on, Toph. You could just close the whole room if you really wanted to and open it back up again and just make a jelly sandwich out of her if you really wanted to. She really could. She could she could totally could. So every time that like a Toph, every time that Toph is within 300 feet of an enemy and they're not dead in the first five seconds, I'm like, ah, okay, we're nerfing Toph that I see. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I, I mean, that's kind of the danger though of like, of bringing in characters or abilities that are so OP, like bloodbending, like, you know, Toph, where it's like, okay, we can use this sparingly and like, you know, obviously rule of cool, but you can't overdo it because otherwise like the show would end. So yeah, there, right. there is a danger we, to that. We saw her solo the entire defenses of of Bossing Say to get <laughs> into the Earth King's presence and all that. I'm just like, come on now. <laughs> was it before or after they knew where Ozai was? Like maybe that's why Toph didn't do that. Maybe she needed information out of her. I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, granted, Toph doesn't tend to go easy on people. She either like kind of knocks them around for fun, or she like just straight up kills them. So, <laughs> so like, yeah, maybe she's like, eh, I probably should hit her. She'll straight up die if I do. Yeah. Um, and it was before they knew where he was because they thought he was in the chamber where she was, but no. <laughs> so. Uh, and because remember, she gives them the directions, you know, dad's all the way down the hall on the secret stairway to the left. Can't miss it. Like, um, but uh, 
I do love that little exchange since we're talking about Toph um, between her and Azula where, you know, they're like, where's the Fire Lord and stick to the truth because I know if you're lying. And she just is like, sure, I'm a pretty good liar. And she does this like bullshit lie. And I'm a purple platypus bear with wings. Like, it's like, with okay, she's pretty so good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I admit it. You're good. <laughs> it's just like she paused. That pause is golden. because She's like, damn, she is good. Um, I that love moment that. where it's confirmed that that Azula is such an actual sociopath that she could lie on a lie detector test and her 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 vitals wouldn't give it away that she's lying. <laughs> That's exactly. kind of scary. Yeah. Kind of sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> Sus. Um, this is also uh, since we're discussing this whole fight scene. Um, <laughs> this is so funny to admit. But there's that moment where there's like this giant hole in this rock wall that Toph had built. Um, and you know, Sokka, poor Sokka, he's just like climbing over it. And <laughs> he's trying to keep up with this whole fight. Azula just comes flying out. Yes. And this actually was the birth of my ultimate avatar crack shift. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm terrible. But <laughs> Todd just taking his headphones off. Okay, listen, listen. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, no. <laughs> I think, okay, I've read some fan fictions where it actually, you know, they rehabilitate Azula and Sokka's the one to help with that. And it's actually really cute. And if she wasn't a crazy psychopathic murderer, I think that they'd be a cute couple. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> If all you do is give her a personality ectomy, <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. You just wasn't Azula, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for the crack shift. What would their name be? They're, it's like Sokzula. <laughs> it's terrible. Sazula. Oh, I don't know. Sazula. Even or... the name of the ship just like hurts to say. Aoka. Amanda, you are never allowed to bring this up for the entire remainder of this podcast. <laughs> well, you would be horrified to discover that there actually is a very active ship, um, another crack ship, which is Aang nope. Zula. Nope. Yeah. And I'm like, nope. that is disgusting. <laughs> I draw the line at Zutara. I'm down for Zutara, but that's about it. <laughs> oh, Lord. No, I'm okay with Azula alone forever. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> Wallowing that's, in self-pity. That, that's, that's my that's my ship. I ship Azula with her self-pity forever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, oh man. She's pretty, Is there anything else? <laughs> oh, yeah, she's gorgeous. All the girls in Avatar are gorgeous. Please. There, really there are. are lots of people who are very pretty on the outside and very ugly on the inside. That is true, true, <laughs> true. Very true. Super, mm -hmm. super true. Um, it is really cool, the entire episode. It really takes us through the amazing... No, the whole two-parter takes us through the amazing battle. Um, you know, we see the progress of the battle from start to finish, including something that you alluded to a very, very long time ago, um, which was the uh, air balloons of the Fire Nation mm -hmm. yep. that, that they recovered from the Mechanist. Uh, that was really cool. The Mechanist had such a big role in the episode. I still remember that you didn't care for the episode in which he was introduced <laughs> at all. And yeah. I just thought it was I thought it was really cool. So for me, it was really awesome seeing him there with all of his inventions being used and everything. And of course, the tragedy being 
that the Fire Nation has air power now. Wow, mm-hmm. that's all we needed. I guess they learned from the whole drill thing, like how to use their resources <laughs> a little bit better, you know? Yes. Yeah, and, you know, like I, I told you, everything comes back eventually. But, um, yeah, that kind of leads into the ending where, you know, we've got these um, these airships, these war balloons that are dropping bombs all over the gang and they're trying to seek shelter and they realize that, man, we're fucked. Like, we got to we got to do something. And so the adults of the group, you know, Hakoda, um, Bato and everybody else, they all say, you know, the youngest of our group should go with you guys. You have to go and you have to find safety and shelter um, to fight another day. We will surrender and we will go to prison basically. And this is one of those scenes, much like the uh, scene in the desert when, you know, Aang is, going into the avatar state and so emotionally uncontrollable. This is one of those scenes that gets me to cry every time I've said it before. I'll say it again. Nothing makes me cry faster than seeing Aang cry. And this is one of the prime examples because the reaction that he has when, you know, the children are basically being separated from their families and, you know, just the burden of that failure finally landing on his shoulders of him not, not taking out fire Lord Ozai. Um, And he's just sitting on top of Appa alone crying and you know Katara has to come over and comfort him and even when she does that he just turns away from her because he's so ashamed of himself and like it is just and then oh he like wipes away his tears he stands up and he makes a speech to all the one all the adults that are staying behind um to be imprisoned and you could just hear in his voice that he's been crying and like it's it cracks and he's just so oh man it gets gets me every time it's oh man it's so good yeah, especially at the beginning of the episode, whenever he was talking to Sokka, trying to, after Sokka's, like, failed speech about the battle plans, um, mm-hmm. even though I don't think he failed, he was just super nervous. But um, yeah, he was like, um, no, I know I'll win because I failed in bossing say, so I'll win this time. So I feel like Aang really took this mm-hmm. failure even harder this time because... You know, he's tired of losing. He's the Avatar. Even though he's young, you know, he, it, it's got to be hard, especially at his age. Like, geez. And I, I too, my heart breaks whenever I hear him cry, for sure. It's so sad. Yeah. You know, one of the things that the show does really, really well, and I, I had a long moment to think about this after the whole big two-parter here was over, and, you know, they're dealing with the fallout of all this, as you say, and and they're leaving. And of course, you know, the reveal, as you'd mentioned, of Zuko following, following them, the show uses failure as a teaching tool and it does it over and over again. And it teaches through failure a lot. Like, one of the episodes that immediately springs to mind of the way the show has used failure as a teaching tool um, is the episode with uh, Sokka getting his his teacher, the sword, the sword teacher. And mm-hmm. we watch him screw up and we watch him mess up and we watch him struggle and we watch him, you know, bobble his way through his training. But like it, it teaches humility it teaches faith and the need for hope. It teaches reliance on your friends and your loved ones, the togetherness and unity of moving forward, of healing, and then learning to try again. 
And it also teaches openness, the ability to not callous over your failures with anger or with spite or with your pride, the way we watch Zuko do over and over again. It uses that as a contrast to show Aang and, and, and Katara and, and all them trying things and failing and instead they open up about it and they open up and they they reach out to each other and they draw each other in and we see that humility and that faith in each other and we watch them build each other up and it uses the show just does an amazing job of not having to give us happy endings in order to show us good always conquering or the power of friendship because the power of friendship is you know would this be would this be an episode of discovering avatar if we didn't make a star wars reference you know in star wars you win with the power of friendship you've got your friends and that's all you need and as long as you believe in each other the force takes care of it your faith takes care of it the magic happens and you win but in this show it's a lot more organic and it's a lot more real in avatar that the power of friendship doesn't defeat the enemy but the power of friendship is what gets you ready to face the bad things, and it's what helps you when sometimes you don't win, but your friends and the people who care about you are still there for you. They don't reject you as much as people like Aang bearing the weight of the world might be afraid that they might. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> I needed to hear that. That was beautiful, honestly. So true, too, and so relatable. Yeah, yeah. You can tell that he's the writer, the romantic writer. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the things like this in the show really they they inspire a lot uh, of those big sort of concepts. The show illustrates it beautifully, and it, I think that as much as thank you for the compliment to me being able to speak it i think it speaks to the genius and the brilliance of the writing in the show that they are able to convey that in a story without requiring a a romantic monologue on my part they are able to do it through amazing story with action and laughter and dark moments and tragedy and tears and and everything that makes avatar as, as great as it is and you know now sitting in the presence of two big avatar fans i can i can say very firmly that you know you can hear how much i get from the show and how much it means to me already the the things they've been able to do with it and i can see why it's you know such a beloved show for mm -hmm. both of you amen to that <laughs> i might have said this already but i just love the fact as todd was saying that there are so many real like real life situations that these characters go through like anxiety in the nightmare and daydreams, you know, the fighting, you know, uh, Sokka standing up and being brave for his father in the black sun episode. And like, not only that, but like he said, the power of friendship and like, there are so many elements and characters and storylines and just, it's such an amazing show. Like, no matter what age you are, whether you're 6, 23, like whenever I watched it again, it doesn't matter. It's still relevant. It's still relevant in your life. And all the lessons are to be taken by heart. And I just love it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so what? That, that said, yeah. Savannah, what do you, what, yeah, we're dying for a rating from you. Amanda and I are on the edge of our seats. Uh, for this episode? Yeah. 
Um, I would give this episode a nine or a nine and a half, maybe. I don't know. I really love this episode just because Zuko really did an awesome job. You know, I'm a Zuko yeah. fan. So, um, I mean, you said this was up in your top four. Yeah, it's, I'd say nine and a half. It's in my top Very four good. or five. So, Amanda, how about you? Um, if we're doing the episode separately, then I would say, honestly, this might be a hot take, but because <laughs> I'm just so full of those. Um, but I actually liked part one more than part two. Um, I really mm-hmm. love the build up to the to the um, not the finale, but the the actual invasion itself. I love seeing all these characters that we've known from the previous episodes and seasons coming back. Um, just all that is I love that kind of stuff. The infiltration of the Fire Nation. Um, and so I would just, but it's just a hair above. So I would put maybe part one at a 9.5 and then part two, mm-hmm. um, at a 9.4. So altogether nine, 9.45. I don't know. <laughs> I don't do 9.45, 9.4514683. <laughs> okay. Got it. I, I, yeah. I did a little calculus on that there. Oh man. <laughs> Um, I am. I'm gonna agree with both of you. I'm gonna agree with uh, the nine. The what sounds very much, although not quite, like a nine point five from Amanda, uh, and the nine point five from Savannah. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a nine point five. The episode, you know, has huge in in every area: the triumph, the failure, the heartbreaks, the lessons learned, and of course, it has as always just a big tease for what's to come as as it always does uh, especially with Zuko following them out and with Mm -hmm. so little time left in season three like I I, as always I'm just super excited to see where things go from here so Savannah thank you for joining us for this episode it's been a pleasure having you thank you so much for inviting me you guys it was a pleasure and it was so fun thank you you're welcome (laughs) you're welcome That's all for today. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so feel free to leave a review or comment, follow the podcast, give us a good rating, and all that good stuff. You can find us on Twitter at Millwood and Micah, and please follow our Instagram at Millwood and Micah Podcast. Thanks again, and we'll be back in the next episode.